Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. Oftentimes when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether it be in regards to human sexuality, whether you know we talk about ageism or abilities, we tend to think in regard to what's the thing I need to do? What's the thing I need to do? What's the thing I need to do? And I oftentimes like to bring it back to what are the practices that help us to be? Mm. To be more just, to be more gracious, to be more aware, to be more attentive. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, today on the Living Centered Podcast, Lindsay and I are so excited to introduce you to Lisa Yaboa. Lisa joined us for a beautiful conversation about belonging, inclusion, grief and lament, and the power of shifting from doing to being when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in our daily lives. Lisa is the lead pastor of the Southeast Raleigh Table, a worshiping community near downtown Raleigh. What fuels her life is seeing people become their best selves, and in turn, seeing the world become a better and more just place. She lives in the intersection of multiple cultural realities and has a keen understanding of how feelings of belonging shape people. We are so grateful that she shared her wisdom and experiences and invited us into curiosity and compassion today. Welcome our friend, Lisa. Hey, Lisa, welcome. We are so excited to have you with us today on the Living Centered Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yes, I think the impetus for this was I was on a call with you about a month ago and you were just dropping wisdom left and right. And I was texted McKinsey immediately. I was like, we need to have Lisa on the Living Center podcast. And so we got it set up and I'm so excited that you're with us today. I think it's going to be a great conversation and I'm super excited to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, one of the things that I love about you is that you are passionate about people becoming their best selves and in turn seeing the world become a better place. And that just syncs up so much with what we are passionate about at OnSite. And although we want people to be well for themselves, I think that we all as a team are so excited about the possibility of the world being a better place when people have done their work and are showing up and just living out of that passion and that curiosity and that purpose that comes with really sort of knowing who you are. Yes. And understanding yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you passionate about that? You know, um, so I I oftentimes use this uh, term that uh, we bump into each other in community 
And when we bump into each other in community, sometimes we bump into each other's brilliance or we bump into each other's brokenness. And so when um, people are committed to their healing, when people are committed to advocating for themselves, when people are committed to being whole, then when people engage them, bump into them, they may actually get to bump into the courage to want to fight for their healing or their, the courage to fight for their wholeness. I mean, we know what it looks like when things are beautiful and work, work well. We also know when things are tragic and traumatic and miserable and sad and despairing. And so it's not to say that we can all, we always have control of the circumstances in our lives. But if we were to say like, personally, I want to reflect the glory that I believe I deserve. And the, and the person beside me says, I want to reflect the glory that I believe I deserve. And I want to reflect the glory I think I deserve. Well, then all of a sudden now, all of these people begin to reflect the glory they deserve. And when people know what it looks like to be whole, we fall in love with that version of ourselves. And then another person falls in love with that version of themselves. And then now you have lots of whole people. And when lots of whole people start to make collective decisions, they make whole decisions. When a lot of healed people make decisions, they make healed decisions. And so I... I want to believe that our healing kind of oozes out and that it, it reaches other people. And then, you know, it kind of has a viral effect in a good way. Yeah. That idea of sort of bumping up against other people mm-hmm. feels so true for me today. And, you know, I think before I started doing work and understanding myself better, I think what was so hard is I bump up against other people and think it was them and not understanding yeah. some of my patterns and thought processes that were getting me where I was doing it over and over again. You know, it it just, it's been really helpful to understand how I can be better at both protecting myself and owning the things that I need to change so that I'm a better friend, a better person in the workplace, and that I'm not hitting up against everybody else. Yeah. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison has this, um, had this quote that love is or it ain't, thin love ain't love at all. Mm-hmm. And I think unfortunately, some of us love ourselves with the thin love. And, and we hope mm-hmm. that other people will somehow love us enough or love us into our wholeness. And I'm not saying that people don't like, sometimes how they treat us helps us to maybe treat ourselves better. But we also do have to be committed to saying, I don't deserve to treat myself in a janky way. I, I also deserve to like rise to my highest humanity, which means I got to get into the nasty now, now of my stuff. You know, like I don't yeah. want to become too, fam- too familiar or okay with like a baseline of living. Like I, can I, can I also love myself enough to dream that it can be more than this? Like whatever I might have, um, mm. I've settled on. And I think we just, we sometimes rely a little too much on other people to like fill in the gaps. Mm versus saying, I got to take some ownership over my own wholeness. Yeah. And I think that ownership piece, I've really seen that play out in my own life. I think for a really long time, I thought like, I'm going to get healthy so that I can be the best friend I can be. I'm going to get healthy so I can be a good wife. I'm going to get healthy so I can be a good mom. And I think I didn't start to really see the progress and come in to the wholest healing that I could have until I decided, no, I'm going to get healthy for me. Yes. I'm going to get healthy because I deserve to be healthy for me and it's not contingent on anyone else. And I think, I mean, that's a a sign of codependence, right? Like taking my pulse on someone else's wrist. Like if I, if you are healthy, you think I'm healthy, then I can be healthy. Yep. And I love that idea of just 
coming home to yourself and owning your healing for yeah. yourself. I think it's so counterintuitive for me. It was for a long time until I started to make that shift. In 2019, I took a, the summer of 2019, I took a sabbatical because, ooh, Jesus, I was like unraveling. And um, what, <laughs> one of my commitments to myself was that I was going to come to onsite. And so I did um, the mm-hmm. Living Centered program. And part of it was because I had to like have a little, like sit down with my, with, with myself, a moment of honesty. Typically when I walk into mm-hmm. a room, because of my vocation, I am the quote unquote healthiest person in the room. I'm the one who asks people yeah. questions about maybe what they're dealing with and maybe they need to ask them, you know, examination. I come as the guru, you know, and it's, it comes, becomes very easy then to distance myself from actually sitting down and asking, you know, um, doing some more self-reflection and examination. And I got to a place where I was like, I am learning how to, um, my, my therapist uses this term, outsmart my smarts. Like I'm tiptoeing mm. around my life and I'm tiptoeing around my broken places and I'm tiptoeing around the, the things that I need to be healed. And I know how to package it really beautifully in, a, in an example for a sermon. And it's kind of like this, do I, do I want to talk about wholeness or do I want to get whole? You know, do I want to talk about mm. healing or do I want to be healed? And I think we, we um, especially like in the social media space with all the memes, we have lots of one liners to talk about growth and evolution. And sometimes I'm like, so on Wednesday, what you what you going to do? Like, how are you going to actually mm-hmm. sit down with yourself and not keep or or choose to um, fill in the blanks? And And sometimes that's harder than we think. We actually have to have some tangible, everyday, ordinary practices to be better. That's so good. And it is so true. I think that I even feel that tension so much of like, instead of talking about being a friend, actually just being a good friend, you know, and like, instead of, you know, we're as an organization doing a lot of work around diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And we um, had a training on it yesterday, which was so helpful for our management team. But just talking about how do we get to a place where it just is flowing out of us enough that we don't have to like talk about it as much yeah. because people just know that that's who we are. And, and that's where we would like to become. And um, I just think that in every area of my life, sometimes it is easier to, you know, put a post up on Instagram and, and check off the box instead of really sitting down and doing the work and putting, you know, our, our hands and our feet to action. Yeah. Uh, I, I keep thinking about how last year, um, I, I call it the black square moment, you know, when people were posting black squares yeah. and, you know, we literally made people into New York Times bestsellers buying, you know, books about whether equity or, you know, kind of uh, racialized identities and, and, and the like. And <laughs> I do a lot of work in the, I don't call it the DEI space about, but like, what does it look like to be anti-racist and to interrogate ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be around, um, you know, whiteness as a construct or internalized racism and, and racialized trauma for those who are BIPOC. And sometimes we can conceptualize where we want to be, but the, the actual step toward it is going to cost us something. And so when people can feel either the resistance or they start to feel like ashamed or embarrassed or recognize like, actually, I don't know as much as I thought I knew about um, race and the American context. And so now it's bringing up all these things. And so what we, we do is we, we, hide from our, we hide from ourselves and we have like kind of performative ways of trying to look 
It, I, I call it like flash healing. It's like the glitter, but like glitter will fall to the ground, you know, um, and healing comes at a cost. I mean, it, you gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta work for the, th- it, it, it's kind of like a wrestling match in many ways. And sometimes um, I think any level of discomfort, we automatically associate that with this must not be good or this must be bad because it, it's making me uncomfortable versus knowing um, this mm. is something I say in my church community, friends, we're going to stretch you to a place of growing. We will not stretch you to a place of breaking. But that means you've mm. got to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Now, it's not being uncomfortable and we just keep you in that place because that's that's cruel. But you have to learn sometimes yeah. like, oh, when you feel ashamed, you will not feel ashamed forever because we're not going to stay in that place. Or when you realize like, ooh, I have enacted a microaggression. Okay, let's call that thing out and let's ask ourselves like, why did I do that? What was the instinct? And how can I create repair? But to think that you can just do hard work, whether on a you know racial equity in the United States or in your personal life, and it will never come with some like having to let some things die, we will be fooling ourselves. And I think as soon as it gets hard for folks, like a little bit of resistance, like, oh, I'm going to have to go back to that moment. Um, I think that's when people start to do mm-hmm. a lot of bypassing. And then we also then bypass maybe getting to see our best selves. So it's going to cost us something, but the yeah. end result will be good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm worth it. As I've engaged in more conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusivity, I think really for my white counterparts, I feel like a lot of times shame is where they get tripped up. Yeah. And I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I think that we can have the awareness and the acknowledgement and the repentance without having the shame. Yep. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying we should bypass a heaviness, but I do think there is a way that we don't have to, I think sometimes shame can just cover us so much that then we don't know how to get out of it. Yep. Yep. We don't. Yeah. Take an action from that or do something from it. Yeah. So it's like, how, how do we sort of look towards being, be okay with being uncomfortable? Yep. Look towards the hard things, but carry it more lightly. Yes. Then I think a lot of people are carrying it. Yeah. And, or or if you can very quickly move to, let me get curious about this, you know, um, my, my director of operations, uh, where I, uh, where I work, she oftentimes says, you know, it's the distinction between what you're responsible for and what you can be response able, where you can be response able. Mm. And so, you know, I think sometimes shame takes us to a place where we start to think we are responsible for things that we're not responsible for. Now, you know, whether personally or, co- or collectively, we have to, we, we, got, we have to be honest with ourselves about, about that. So yeah. we, sh- we, sh- we, we, we need not own what we need not own. And always understanding, I have to be response-able. So in, in a moment um, uh, where I'm faced with like the reality of some hard truths, how can I be response-able? <laughs> I think sometimes shame takes us to this place where Self and sometimes even self blogging is easy because like shame can so get you stuck and then you don't have to like you don't feel like you have to like move beyond the the place or it actually or it makes you um, it uh, keeps you from being able to flex some different agency in in life mm-hmm. anyway that's a whole story that's helpful for, for, that's you know, really yeah. yeah that but that's a helpful shift for me so thank you yeah I think that's a good distinction. Um, you were talking about how you just feel like the importance of practices is so like essential to emotional wellness and 
how does that apply to this conversation as we're talking about feeling inactive when it comes to topics of racial inequality and equity? And so what are some of the practices that someone on the outside of that of like, I know I want to engage with this, I haven't, or my shame is keeping me immobilized? Hmm. What does that look like? Ooh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. We, we probably could write a whole book um, uh, <laughs> about that. I think it all depends on where you sit. And, and what I mean by that is if you are mm. have an identity where you're centered. So if like if you are white in this in this world, in the American context or, yeah. you know, and uh, if you're a person of color and, and the various levels of access that we might have um, to whiteness. You know, I, so here's I, I tend to. So I'm going to I'm going to lean into my bag, you know, as a as a pastor. I do think oftentimes when we talk about diversity, equity and inclusion on, on lots of different levels, whether it be in regards to human sexuality, whether, you know, we talk about um, ageism or abilities, we tend to think in regard to um, like, what's the thing I need to do? What's the thing I need to do? What's the thing I need to do? And I oftentimes like to bring it back to what are the practices that help us to be, to be mm. more just to be more gracious, to be more aware, to be more attentive. So I think one of the practices um, I would like invite maybe my congregation or anyone who is in, does life with me is to say, when you feel something like when there's a moment, let's say a moment you're corrected or you read a news report and you just like, you have a visceral reaction. Maybe sometimes it's to like stop and to get curious. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm. we live in a world where the news is not going to ever give you space to breathe and to ask questions. It's just going to throw out rhetoric That's good. and want you to hold on to it. We have to move slower if we want to be just people. And mm -hmm. so if we don't like have good questions for ourselves, like, God, why did I? So here's the thing. I, I do not like people to put their hands in my hair, you know, without asking me. And it's a whole microaggression yeah, yeah. and people can read, can read about why, why, what, what that's about. So let's say someone does that and I'm like, whoa, no. And I just like knock your hand out of my, and a person's like, well, you know, Lisa, but we're friends or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, listen, there's a whole whatever. Let's say mm -hmm. that person might need to, instead of like digging in their heels, which is sometimes people's visceral reaction or like, or feeling like they got embarrassed or I should have like not said something to them in public. I should have waited afterwards. What if you just took 15 minutes like of a clearing exercise to be like, okay, let me replay this. Let me think about yeah. Lisa's reaction. Let me maybe do a little research as to like why her reaction isn't just personal, but it's like steeped in a, a whole lot of stuff, but to slow it up a little bit. Yeah. And oftentimes for people like to, to slow it up, then you realize like, okay, now how am I going to show up differently tomorrow? You know, that that's sometimes the grace is to know, well, but tomorrow I can show up differently. Like I mm -hmm. might ask before I ever reach out to touch someone. I or I'm like, that's that's going to be a no, no for me. Or if I see somebody else about to do it, I'm going to be like, hey, if you, you know, <laughs> I'm going to advocate for other for people. This, that's yeah. such a small example. But I think to before we always think about like, so now what do I need to do? It's like, well, who do you need to be? Like, first, let's like get. Curious mm. about like how have I centered myself and not realize I've centered myself? When have I used my anger in ways that um, actually mm. took up too much space? Like first, let's talk about like our being. If not, we'll make race and equity and inclusion projects that are beyond ourselves. And somehow we're not a part of right. it. We're, we're just like watching the thing happen. We're watching equity happen yeah. versus realizing like if I'm not if I am not equitable with the way in which I treat people. <laughs> Equity is <laughs> just like jazz hands. Yeah, I think 
One, that's a really beautiful distinction moving from doing to being, which I think we're all about at Onsite and we talk a lot about that. But it also, I think, ties in really well with how we started this conversation that all of that becoming, you know, making an impact in the world starts with ourselves. And so I'm really um, grateful that you walked us through that and offered that wisdom to us Um, and really just did it in such a graceful way. That curiosity, I think whenever we choose curiosity over judgment or, you know, um, even just shame, Mm. it just unlocks something and Mm -hmm. it really opens up a, a graceful lens. So Thank you for doing that for yeah, us. Yeah, thank you all for going um, there. <laughs> I love it. And I'm really grateful that you're willing to dive in with us. I ran across a video where you used the word culturally homeless. Mm. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that within your own story and maybe even how you see it show up in the world, but just how it's impacted you and a little bit. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more yeah. in that, that context. Yeah. So um, I am, uh, I'm first generation. Um, my parents are from Ghana, West Africa, and they um, emigrated mm-hmm. to the U.S. Actually, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was the first person. Oh, yes, what? I know. The first person in the Yeboah clan born on American soil. And mm-hmm. when my dad, when I was going into third grade, I moved from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to the low country of uh, South Carolina, to the Charleston area. And if you know anything about mm-hmm. Charleston or the state of South Carolina there, uh, because of plantation life, uh, well, when individuals were enslaved, there's just um, some interesting realities of the, like the West African diaspora that you are going to, you're going to find. Shrimp and grits, okra, red rice, that did not just kind of fall from the sky. These are West African, you know, foods and, and, and dishes that kind of um, adapted and, and found their way there. So here it is. I'm this Ghanaian American black woman who lives in the low country of South Carolina, where literally my ancestors, though I know where I'm from, I can tell you my mom's from Cape Coast and my dad is from Accra, where my ancestors come. So I'm looking at people who look like me. I mean, my mother can literally mm-hmm. walk around South Carolina and say, oh, that person's probably Eve. That pro- person's probably from the Ashanti tribe, just based off of features, mm-hmm. physical features, you know. And I'm, mm-hmm. so I'm walking around among people who look like me, but they have last names, Limehouse, Green, Desishore, Beauchene. I'm a Yeboah. So I sometimes mm-hmm. would feel like among my black counterparts that I wasn't, you know, South Carolinians ask this question, who your people? Like, you know, who, 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 your, who your people are? And that there's a <laughs> sense that Yeboah is not, <laughs> I am not all the way from South Carolina, but I'm black and I, and I very much can like mm-hmm. relate to that. And the academic space mostly was the only uh, black person in the academic space. And I always say this, I, I could speak their language fluently. Mm. You know, I could speak their dialect fluently. Like yeah. I know how to navigate white space. Most of my academic mm. life has been navigating, n- navigating white space. But there's always a moment where you realize, but I'm not white. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not there. So I, I would just say that I live at these interesting cultural intersections where I sometimes felt like I was never enough, so I wasn't like black enough, but I also didn't speak any of my parents' dialects from Ghana, so I wasn't also Ghanaian enough, and try, and also to this idea of like assimilating into American culture. I'm in all these white spaces, but I'm not white enough. And what it did, you know, I don't think when I was younger, I would have said, oh, I feel culturally homeless, or like I'm always straddling the intersections of cultural realities, is that I, mm-hmm. I started though having this awareness of what does it look like for me to belong wherever I am? As an adult, I realized sometimes I had to shape shift and, and I'm and I'm healing yeah. from that trauma of always the shape shifting, specifically in predominantly white space. Um, but I think also as an adult, here's the gift is I tend to keep my eyes out for the person who's not centered, 
who may also feel like they're straddling way too many intersections and those the straddling is actually chaotic and not comfortable. And so I love those people. Th- those are my people. Uh, folks mm. who, who never feel like they're enough. I- I'm always wanting to speak into them, their enoughness, you know, like you are. Mm. Um, you, where, um, Maya Angelou says, you know, I belong to no one. I belong everywhere. I, you know, I, I, yeah. She has, a, she has a quote about belonging. And I'm like, I want us to know that wherever we are, wherever your feet are planted, you own it, you know, you, you th- got it. And, mm-hmm. and we live in a world though that is always causing us to question, are you allowed to be here? In mm-hmm. subtle ways, is your body type allowed to be here? Is your color allowed to be here? I'm talking about whether it be the hue of, are you allowed to be here? Of your um, yeah. sexual, are you allowed to be here? The, the world has subtle ways of doing that. And so if we don't have this inner, like, no, I belong. When I walk into a space and, <laughs> and I am the quote unquote outlier, I'm never the outlier. Because yeah. I can say to myself, I'm, I, you might see me as the outlier. I have my own internal mantra, like, I, 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 I'm here. But, you know, like, I don't know what you think, but I'm not, yeah. waiting, I'm not waiting for permission. I do by authority because my humanity is, is, is enough. You know, it's, it's enough. Anyway, yeah. y'all got me riled up. That's good. <laughs> have you ever been told that you can't trust your feelings? What if I told you that understanding your feelings and getting smart with the information that they're giving you is the key to actually unlocking your potential. Because here's the deal. Your feelings are not innately bad or good. They just are. All our feelings are just pieces of information that help us understand what's really going on beneath the surface. If I'm honest, addressing what's below the surface sounds exhausting. But the truth is, avoiding your emotions is much more exhausting than feeling them. When we leave our feelings unaddressed, they take a toll on our emotional, mental, relational, and even physical health. The bottom line is, we can't afford to ignore them anymore. It's time to start understanding our emotions and the power they have to unlock our greatest potential. That's why I'm excited about our brand new class, Becoming Emotionally Smart. This accessible digital class includes over 80 minutes of clinical expertise and an interactive workbook designed to ground, unpack, and apply the concepts to your everyday life. Sign up before September 30th and save $40 when you use the code PODCAST. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash emotionally smart to learn more and sign up today. I love how you can articulate that. And it it sounds like, I mean, you just have such a connection to who you are and what I know from my own experience and what I've heard from other people is sometimes that's really hard. So did you always have this awareness and language to put to that experience? Hmm. Because, I mean, I think, you know, like our racialized identity and our history as humans, especially in white culture, like a lot of people don't have that sense of where where I came from Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they would identify as white but they don't know what their culture is is beyond that and a lot of that has been kind of a we've erased from ourselves because we haven't had to know more yeah (laughs) but how did what was your process like of being able to put voice to your experience in that way because it's so helpful and I think there are a lot of people that are like who am I yeah and asking the basic questions yeah you know, I'm not the most assertive p- person. I'm actually t- a tinier person <laughs> compared to most other adults my age. I'm just, I've always been 
smaller. Your um, Instagram handle is Petite, petite Pastor. Pastor. Uh, yeah. And I think yeah. Just, yeah. Just, like, yeah. I, I've worn the same uh, shoe size since fourth grade, like no lie. I've just, I did, <laughs> growth was not my, was not the banner over my life. That's not, I wasn't going to get the, the one who grew the tallest um, in seventh grade awards. But, um, you know, Lindsay, that's a really great question because I'm, I'm not, I was never the most assertive person um, on the Enneagram. I, I'm a, I'm a nine, a peacemaker. And so mm. I tend to always be scanning the room and I kind of have a sense of, um, from my gut, like people around me, but sometimes can fall asleep to my own dreams. I will say this though, mm-hmm. and um, there's always been a little fighter in little Lisa, where I am probably most uncomfortable and most miserable in my life when I feel like I have to do this, I have to make myself small. I mean, probably the, the, mm-hmm. the seasons of my life when I have felt the most wholly restless have been the seasons when I've, I, when I've either been made to feel like I need to make myself smaller or when I have done that to mm-hmm. myself, when I have abdicated responsibility to my humanity. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think that in small ways growing up, even though I didn't have the language of my cult, being culturally homeless or realizing that I had to code switch or shape shift in certain spaces, there was always a part of me that was going to like resist. Like, so... You know, in academic spaces, yeah, I mean, I had to code switch. I mean, it's kind of, it was a survival mechanism. But if there was something that I was really excited about learning or writing about, I was going to do it. And I was going to do it so well that you're going to need to, you might need to be like, ooh, that was good. Or Mm -hmm. I would choose characters. It's funny, I would oftentimes choose characters that um, were um, proponents of resistance. Like I, I will not forget. I wrote a, a paper in eighth grade, and I, I started it off by talking about like um, the the Israelites in the wilderness, <laughs> and um, and the Exodus mm-hmm. story. Like of all things, but this idea of like an act of resistance, you know. Uh, and I think it was my way of working out. Like you will not do this to like I don't know. I don't. Uh, yeah. Little Lisa only has so much like power. But I'm the places where I can kind of sliver, like sliver, and I'm I'm going to do that. I think we all actually feel a little bit. Hmm, I think there's a sorrow when we know we're not being totally authentic. I think that sorrow mm-hmm. might look like, you know, no, I, drink, yeah. I drink a little too much at parties or I overcompensate uh, or I'm, I'm like the greatest performer among my friends. But there's a sorrow when we're like, this is not, this just isn't, this isn't just, this isn't me. And I, I so I think that, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, do I want to with my, the limited days I have on earth? Because one day I won't be here. Do I want to live not, never recognizing myself? I, I don't know. I just am not willing to do, I'm just not willing. Something right. in me is like, I'm just not willing to do that. And how could other people know you if you don't know and let, know yourself and let them know you? That's right. That's right. We're sweaty. We're going to be a sweaty mess if we wear a mask for the rest of our lives. Like at some point it's like, I can't, you know, I can't wear this Halloween outfit forever. You know, <laughs> like right. at some point yeah, I got to take, take the mask. Off. I got to take the mask off. Yeah. And even the masks that have been put on me, which sometimes like, it's not like, um, you know, I know when I walk into a room, sometimes people might actually map my existence, whether um, they're, they're right or not. They might automatically have some assumptions about who I am. And so we have to even have micro, micro acts of resistance to say, but the world's wrong. Like, you know, so even if I wake up in the morning and I say, I know how the world sees me, but let me tell the, say the, the thing about me that I know is actually true. Like they can't see. Like, even if I say that, well, but they don't really see me. So 
I, I can't go by what these jokers say. <laughs> I, gotta, I, I trust myself more than I trust uh, assumptions or stereotypes or uh, um, an idolized lens uh, or a caricatured lens. I, I, I'm never going to put my trust in that, but I can put trust in the fact that I know who I am when I wake up in the morning. So maybe I'll say that over myself um, and surround myself yeah. with people who really do see me versus those who, who don't. I love that. When you were talking, it made me think I heard this quote. Yesterday I was listening to an audiobook and she quoted a roomy quote that said, I, I looked it up, tear off the mask, your face is glorious. Mm. And I heard it and I just like, it just settled into my soul of like, when you know who you are, you don't want to hide behind That's that. That's right. Like, why would you hide the gloriness and the trueness of who you actually are? Yeah. Um, and so that's what I was thinking. And I just want to reflect back to you that your face is glorious. Mm. Um, and when you choose to show up as your whole self, you give people in your life the permission to do the same. And I think it's really beautiful. Yeah. In my, in my faith tradition, um, there's this belief that, you know, the creator, the divine higher power mm -hmm. looks at all that um, the divine has created and says, it is very good. And I really believe that. Like, I believe that um, mm -hmm. if the divine says that I'm very good, then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that. And all the other name tags that have been put on me by the empire, by the world, by people who couldn't see me mm -hmm. rightly, um, I believe the divine rips that off and says, nope, very good. I see all that I create mm. and it's very good. You talked earlier about just walking into rooms and sometimes feeling like you might have to have the mask on or be the person that is the most put together. Um, and then you talked about coming to onsite and I wondered what it was like because you are in a vocation mm -hmm. um, as a pastor. Mm -hmm where, and I think there are a lot of people in these types of vocations where I have to lead out with what I do or people have expectations of how I should show up because I am fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. I am the CEO. I am the pastor. I am the bubbly outgoing mm -hmm. person. That's, you know, the narrative that I carry. Yeah. People know me. I am a therapist. Mm -hmm. yeah. I am a therapist. Yes. So what was it like to be at onsite, um, and not wear that? We don't, we, uh, if anyone doesn't know, we don't talk about what we do at Onsite. And so I happen to be in your group yep. and I, I'd love to hear from you <laughs> what it was like going and not being Pastor Lisa. Yeah. So, uh, so first I'm going to just say it was so hard for me. I would say the first 48 hours, not talking about <laughs> my work. Cause I, I, I mean, it, it became very clear to me by day one. I'm like, God, I over identify <laughs> with my work. I lead out with what I do and not who I be. But part of my sabbatical and coming to onside mm. was I literally had lost the ability to wake up in the morning and ask myself, Lisa, what do you want? Because my life is so much scheduled around everyone else's wants and needs. And I was like, I don't even know how to answer that. So the first day I just was like, oh, God, I over identify. So, you know, probably was crying somewhere, having to deal with that. And it was good. Cleansing, cleansing tears. I also think sometimes people can smell it from a mile away. So here's the other part of it. It's like pa being a pastor isn't only who, what I do. It is, there is a part of me that is pastoral. So I think sometimes people yeah. can feel like, oh, you feel like you are an ambassador of healing. Let me just sit beside you and start telling you everything. And I'd, and I'd be like, you know, I think your small group facilitator would be like better to like to handle this. So I you just do that. Yeah. So I think in some ways that's not a bad thing. It's just like, okay, but here's, here's where, um, you know, Mackenzie, I also had to learn how to be boundaried and to be just, just be human at onsite. Mm. It, that was also a practice for me is like, Lisa, what does it look like if you don't 
sit and start telling folks, here are the five questions I think you should probably ask yourself and instead be like, wow, okay, let me tell you about my story as opposed to let me take on the mantle of like a pastor. And so I feel like I needed to come to onsite to learn how to not be codependent and, and be for me, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to prioritize my healing to not let like a self-martyrdom be the story, which I think can be a very unhealthy thing. Like, you know what, yeah. I'm going to let this person tell me everything. And I'm not going to also say, this is the hurt and the pain in my life. It's like, so there was a part yeah. of like onsite that I think made me realize, like, if, if I do anything that feels pastoral, I'll be performing. And I, and I need to, I need to lay that down while I'm, while I'm here. I tell people that onsite was just a game changer for me. I, I'm, I'm pretty open about my time at onsite. Cause I also want p- other people to know, like, I don't have it all together, you know? Yeah. I don't have it all together. Yeah. And I also don't think that going to onsite means that you, everything's falling apart. It, it, it just simply means like, I love myself enough to want to be the very best version I can possibly be. And that means, yeah, taking some time, taking some time away. So yeah, I learned how to like maybe be boundaried uh, while I was, while I was there. I assume that, that like those are learnings that as you have to step back into the role of pastor come with you and that you then sort of leaving it carry it a little differently. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, no, very, very, very much so. Like one of the things that became a, a part of actually my, one of my practices is around grounding. Um, I don't have difficult conversations anymore without like also honoring my humanity in a space and other people's humanity in the space. And mm-hmm. actually like taking it seriously, if I'm going to, you know, if someone's going to come to me with something that I'm not over and against if someone's screaming or like we're going to try. So yeah. So like incorporating like very, me being human. Um, it's not that I ask mm-hmm. people to therapize me, you know, that, that would be a, a breach of vocationally, but uh, but we are going to honor each other's humanity. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing that really shifted for me after coming back from onsite. If there are conversations that deal with like race, and maybe it's a, a, a member of my community who is white, who is still on the journey, and maybe th- there's defense, or um, I, I find another person on my, on my staff or my team who is white, who I'm like, I want you to hold space for them because it's going to be too difficult for me to hold space without also being harmed. And I'm not, I'm no longer going to do that. And I think there was a time in my life where I felt like I, that's me being a good pastor is like, even no matter what, I'm going to take it. And onsite really helped me to realize like, no, you, you don't. Um, that's actually, a, uh, it was yeah. actually, it was actually a part of a, of a, of a cycle in my life uh, of an, an unhealthy mm-hmm. pattern of, you know, you, you did good if you also took it on the chin. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the learnings that I had early on when I came on staff at Onsite was the idea of secondary and vicarious trauma Mm. and just the cost of even if we don't experience something firsthand, if we're hearing about it in a detailed way, if we're watching it on the news, that, that there is a sort of that is trauma, you know, just acknowledging it. And that sticks with us and needs to be processed and released. Yes. Um, or it will continue to sort of mount up and become a barrier to our healing. And, and I think for so many people in the helping profession, whether they be pastors or therapists or that they, there is so much caring of pain and trauma for themselves and for other people that it can be overly burdensome Mm -hmm. and that, that, it's hard to know how to, for us 
that are, are not in those professions. Like, how do we help the helpers? Yep, yep. <laughs> you yep, know, yep. and I love part of it is that they, you know, it's, they need to work to have boundaries. But are there other things that we can do to support the helpers in our lives? Yeah, you know, I think a question that I think um, helpers need to be asked is, is this a boundary or is this a veil? Mm, you know, is this a boundary or is this a veil? So, you know, I think a, 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 those who are in helping professions, we realize we need to establish good boundaries, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm not going to take up all the time in a, in a session with someone talking about my parents and, you know, or whatever, but, but, but there's also sometimes a thin line between trying to perform and present and pretend and so mm-hmm. if I can feel it in myself, you know, it might be helpful if I just said, hey, you know, um, let me just share a really quick story about bop, 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 to feel it when it's uh, when I don't tell the story, maybe because it's a boundary or when I don't tell the story because I'm trying to cloak, cloak or pretend or um, not be honest about maybe the reality that, you know, 50 other people have also had this particular experience. And so mm-hmm. I do think people in, in healing, helping professions need folks who are attuned to, like I said, you know, my therapist asks me, are you outsmarting your smarts? But people around them who are say, okay, um, who ask them like five times, you know, how are you doing? No, how are you doing? Mm. No, how are you doing? No, how are you, you know, how are you doing? Or how are you being? Uh, You know, I need people and I do have people in my life who ask me, Lisa is, are you prettying up a lie? You know, uh, I think another another way that we can help helpers is um, to give them spaces where they can live congruent lives, um, where their public and their private lives match up, and to have people who help them make sure that that's 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 happening mm-hmm. again around the that's the good. boundaries versus the veils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak to like the importance of figuring out what those spaces are. Like you can't. I mean, living congruently. Do you feel like that's the same as living authentically? Do you feel like there is an element that you need to be like a little bit separate, separate in some context and protective of other things? Or what does that balance and tension look like for you? Yeah. So, yeah, I would say a congruent life is an authentic life. An authentic life is a congruent life. And what I typically say Mm -hmm. as congruent is that who I say I am, um, that when I put my head on the pillow at night, that is who I be. You know, that is how I have shown up in the world. Or that what I do behind closed doors, that who I am behind, you know, it, it, you know, beyond the doors, that those things are true. And I think there's a difference between yeah. secrets and being private. I mean, I'm not, I'm, yeah. Everyone doesn't shouldn't have access to our stories and to every aspect mm-hmm. of our of our lives. I mean, like we're not checking in yeah. on Facebook. Like I'm now putting on my moisturizer. You know, check Lisa's at home <laughs> putting on moisturizer. Some things can be private; they don't need to be secret. But you know, Mackenzie, your question makes me think about how important it is. While solitude is a gift and we need to be able to be, um, uh, uh, bell hooks would say, if you don't, if you don't know how to practice solitude, you actually can't really be good. You, you will use friends instead of like enjoy friends. She has a, I'm paraphrasing her yeah. quote. I do think none of us should try to do life beyond without community. Community is what keeps mm-hmm. me honest. Well, healthy community is who keeps me, who yeah. keeps me honest. Um, I do think some people need to have access to your stories. So that my my circle of trust, they can say to me, Lisa, you keep saying X, Y, and Z, but you are doing X, Y, and Z. 
And who are the people who both show me grace and also accountability and side by side, like those two things are yoked together. So they're not either using power over me, but they use power with me. And those are folks who typically know that grace and accountability need to always be. Um, so I do think Love that grace and accountability together, yeah, grace and accountability. So folks in helping professions living authentic and congruent lives and any of us living authentic and congruent lives, I would say we need community and this pandemic, I believe, has actually caused many of us to right-size our relationships where we realized some people we needed to, it's not so much we had to let them go or cancel them. We just realized maybe they don't need to have the same access because access really was like closed off. We're realizing maybe this yeah. was the boundary. Maybe I should have created some different boundaries with how much this person knows about my life or um, what I tell certain people, um, who is for me and who is with me and who may not be for me or with me or may not have the capacity to be for me or with me. So yeah, community. My community is um, who make sure that all of my Lisa's are holding hands and are not living chaotic. Yeah. I love that. That's a really beautiful picture. And I also love how you were saying, I love the analogy of like earning the right to speak into my life and whose mm. voice is like, <laughs> who do I give a microphone mm. and who do I tell? Like you need to be farther back. Like, I think that's just a really good picture. Yeah, you put them on mute. You're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Their lips are moving. But I do not know what they <laughs> are you. saying. That's right. <laughs> Smile <Yeah>. and wink. <laughs> you just uh, referenced sort of coming out of the pandemic and this yeah. last year and even this year has been just woo, overwhelmingly <laughs> difficult for people in <laughs> um, different ways, you know, um, mm-hmm. but with the polarization of politics and the racial divide and just it feels like there's constantly emergency after emergency. One of the things that I appreciated uh, that you created, gosh, I guess maybe late last year was a service of lament mm-hmm. um, yeah. and really helping sort of give space and process for the act of lament And I'd love to just sort of hear you talk about sort of the importance of lament and the process of lament Hmm. and how that's been a healing tool for you. Yeah. You know, I I would say that in many communities of color, lament is um, is almost natural. Like, I mean, in regard to Mm -hmm. leaning into both weeping and wailing and rending the clothing and also to and then having high moments of joy. You know, Macrina Whitaker, she says that, you know, joy and sorrow are sisters. They live in the same house. And, you know, we because we do live in a culture that loves for people to move on or um, to feel better quickly, you know, um, we, we love to bypass pain. But when we bypass pain, it's almost like an ankle bracelet. It will find a way to hold on to you and it'll show up. It'll show up as sideways energy in, in our lives. Lament gives us the opportunity to have like real acts of grief to say that something is actually worth our attention and our tears and our sadness and our remorse. But it always comes with a comma and. Lament is never about staying stuck. It's always a comma and. Like I will sit on the trash heap of my life, but I will hold in my right hand a song of praise. You know, like I will not be here forever, but for now I need to sit in this space. And I feel like for most of us in 2020 and in 2021, but in in our lives in general, there are some things that we did not give ourselves an opportunity to grieve. And then we were stuck at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I found is that, yes, there were lots of, you know, last summer, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, I mean, Ahmaud Arbery, you name it. There are lots of things that like all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, and I can't turn my attention away. 
So it's like, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, a, an active way of doing this. I want you to weep in your house and walk around your, your, your kitchen. And it may not be because of things that are happening in the news. It may be because your child's year got totally upended or that you're realizing mm-hmm. the person you, you share space with, you, you don't really know each other. Weep for the grandmother you didn't weep for five years ago because every time you cried, everyone was like, oh God, don't cry, don't cry. No, weep for it now, like weep for it now. Turn your attention to it with the comma and and I won't be here forever and it won't hurt this bad, you know, some time from now. But I think um, lament is a lost art in American culture. You know where my parents are from? You hire mourners. You hire mm-hmm. people to literally to say this thing that is so shaken in your life, we're, we'll let it shake our lives as well. And I think actually lament opens us up to grace. Mm. I may not know what it is to feel that pain personally, but I see you broken over it. I'm going to stop and I'm going to lean in with, with others. And I, I feel like actually lament has saved my community. Um, you know, we mm. stop, we, instead of like, just like, let's get on to the next thing. We're like, no, like let this disrupt our lives. Um, but let's give it a framework to disrupt, uh, to disrupt our lives. And so for somebody that's never done this well, yeah. You yeah. sort of tease out a little bit of that framework or, and we'll link to sort of the service that you put together as well in the show notes so people can listen. It was a gift to me. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, this is going to be a stretching thing to say, but um, I feel like cathartic expressions are really beautiful. Again, I think mm-hmm. in the American context and specifically around the construct of whiteness, there's oftentimes this sense of like, don't move your body. Don't cry loudly. Don't, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something very constricting at times. So I would actually, as a practice, I would say like, let's say something is bothering you, you know, something is hurting you. Something is weighing heavy. Get up and just like start to pace first, just pace, pace, and then get vocal. You know, this mm. friend wrote this thing about me and said this thing about me. First, you might feel kind of like silly, but then you know, like how, when you when you start to like, um, you, you, you're laughing and then you start to cry and then you start to sob, like, and you're just like, what happened? Sometimes it's like your, your mm. heart catches. And I think when you're moving, um, I tend to do this. I, I call it tearing because the church mothers that I grew up with, mm. they would rock. They would, but I do it. And all of a sudden it's like, my body is like my head and my heart start to like ca- catch up to each other. You know, the thing that I've been ruminating, my heart yeah. is like, but it's broken. We're broken. We're fr- and so I would just say walk walk, move, sway, and just start talking, start saying the thing and then let it go. And once, because you have an instinct when you, when it catches to be like, no, oh God, no, 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 no. I cannot go there. Let it go. Like trust, trust yourself to like, to like, to let it go. Mm -hmm. So I know this, I mean, it probably sounds woo woo. I do feel like that is such a repressed (laughs) art. Mm -hmm. And and I was with a friend yesterday that was grieving something and the amount of times they apologize for their tears. Mm. I'm like, your tears are welcome here. That's like, right. You, this is a gift. That's right. And That's so, right. And that is really easy for me to believe for other people. <laughs> but a really hard thing to show up and show my the fullness of my emotions with someone else. So yeah. it's a really important reminder. Yeah, yeah. I would hope people would say, I'm not going back to something, you know, which may mean, um, what would it look like if we all asked ourselves the question, is there something I need to grieve that I have delayed the grieving? 
mm-hmm. you know, something that I had to let go of that I, you know, that I, but I've delayed the, that I've delayed the, the grieving. I know with my own work with my therapist, there's some things that, you know, um, she has asked me, Lisa, do you need to grieve that thing? And I'm like, oh God, I do. Cause grieving is work. I feel like grieving is like opening a, like a box that you don't know what's in it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're scared of the fullness of like, what am I going to find? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but otherwise we're just carrying around all these boxes of monsters. That's and, right. You know, like. And sometimes it's not as scary as you think. I think that's my tendency as an Enneagram 7. This has been the lesson (laughs) of my last probably two years. I like joy. I don't like sad things. And realizing that I I, I have built up grief and lament and sadness into a bigger creature than it often is. Hmm. And it can also be really beautiful. It can be an invitation. It can be a gift. But like if I continue to let it carry on and stay in the dark, it will be scary Yep. and it yeah. will be a creature. But when you bring that creature out into the light, it's like, oh, like you're saying, joy and sadness are sisters and they live in the same house. And let's let's let her get out of the closet. Let's not let her be the scary sister. You know, Yep. I think it's just so such a beautiful gift. And I I wonder what it looks like to hold those two things hand in hand, like you were saying of like I'm giving I've literally written myself permission slips that like, you have permission to mm. grieve this and put it in my pocket so that when that that temptation rises up, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to say this or I'm embarrassed of it. I say, no, this matters. Yeah, I'm allowed to grieve it. Yep. Like it's yep. just yeah, it's so hard. I yep. just why is it so hard for us to be comfortable in doing yeah. that? Yeah, it's so weird. yeah. I, yeah I, you know, um, sadness is not a and I, and I oftentimes think of sadness with my grief um, or with lament. Um, yeah. Because sometimes when you do lament, that means you have to also name the things that are so broken. I mean, I feel like every other day mm-hmm. I, was start, I was leading a lament service with my community. I was like, well, daggone, the world is trash. Um, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, comma, and, I got to hope it's not going to always be trash. Like my, te- my tears today yeah. might turn into rejoicing. There's always a comma and is the, the thing I have to remind yep. myself in life. I love that context, comma and. The comma mm-hmm. and. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I hope that we all will sign off and spend some time thinking about that question that you posed at the end of, you know, what is something that we haven't fully grieved that we should spend some time with this week. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for who you are and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I I also want to just give a a, a shout out to my, um, uh, my therapist and to the crew um, at Onsite because I, um, I believe actually you have all helped me to be a better question asker because you ask me good questions. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.